Hello, welcome to the Next Level Sunday Show. I'm here with my BFF, JVL. We've got a great interview coming up with Ben McKenzie. You might remember him as Ryan Atwood from the OC, but now he's an investigative journalist. And his book, Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud is out now. It's a great book. The conversation is super interesting. We go deep on crypto. We do a little bit on acting and a little bit about like being in a midlife crisis and trying to find work that is fulfilling. So I think it's a good conversation, you know, regardless. JVL, do you have any thoughts? It's not a good conversation. It's a great conversation. And for anybody who is uh, at all interested in the way in which crypto is this enormous wealth transfer that was essentially fraud happening in broad daylight, so to the extent that everybody who's on the consumer end and retail end of it understood that it was probably fraud, but they thought they were the ones who were going to get rich from it. People on the the actual back end of it, as Ben mentions, there's, you know, in all of the discovery from the various lawsuits that have come on, there's one um, internal email from one of these exchanges saying, bro, we're running an unregulated securities trading firm. Rock on. You know, like they... <laughs> Everybody knew. Everybody knew. It's amazing. Man, this guy has got chapter and verse on all this stuff. Yeah, he he does a great job. Some of our pro-crypto listeners are going to be upset. And I just have to say that if you're a crypto industry person, you have a lot of celebrities, you know, that have endorsed you. So if if Steph Curry or, you know, Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or Matt Damon want to come on the podcast to talk about how great crypto is and how Ben McKenzie's an idiot, we'd have it. We'd listen to it. I'm for it. I'm sympathetic to Ben's point of view, but I'm open to being pushed on this. Okay, we're taping this Friday afternoon, and um, we have a trial date for Mylene Cannon of May 2024 for the former president over the documents case. We are still waiting on any moment now. We could hear more details on the third indictment related to January 6th. There are plenty of legal podcasts you can listen to to get the ins and outs of the timing on this trial date and whether that actually ends up happening in May or not. Talk to me about the notion that one of our two major political parties is right now poised to nominate somebody who is set to be on trial in the heat of the campaign for criminal misuse of classified documents. So the, the primary campaign will be over by then. Yeah, right. And, you know, the primary campaign will be over by early, early spring so that, that's because of Super it's like They would have nominated somebody right. during, the no, during the general election campaign. Their nominee will be on trial. We won't be to the conventions yet, right? The conventions will be in the summer. So this will be like eight weeks before the conventions. The, the two things that I think are worth noting about this. One is that it isn't just us crazy, never Trump idiots who think this. Bill Barr who disgraced himself as Trump's attorney general, he says Trump is dead to rights on this stuff, right? So this is, again, it isn't, right. it isn't just the deep state BLM Antifa socialists who are saying, huh, this is a problem. The dude who literally ran cover for him yes. on the Russia activities. Yeah. yeah, he says Trump is dead to rights. Two, I think it is important to understand that Republicans are poised to nominate Donald Trump, not in spite of his crimes, but in very large part because of them. I mean, we had this conversation in the year running up to to this year, in 2022. There was a lot of, well, what if indicting Trump really makes the Republican voters double down on him, right? And, And ultimately, it isn't anybody's call. 
except for the prosecutors, right. right? This is why we have prosecutorial independence. It isn't like Joe Biden and Democratic voters got to have a vote to decide which would – that isn't the way the law works, right? It's not what, the way we want the law to work. But to the extent to which like Trump's fortunes got even better, it's not that he turned around, but he was doing very well and then he started doing even better once the justice system in its various guises was accusing him of committing serious crimes. And what this says about 40% of our country is terrifying. So you're saying that these people were not, you know, meticulous, single issue handling of classified materials voters in 2016, as some people told us that they were. Turns out that that is not the case. I thought they were. I thought I thought that Hillary Clinton was a unique danger because of her emails. But I guess that turns out not to be the case. Just like freedom turns out not to be really the watchword, right? We now have a fight between nationalist conservatives and freedom conservatives. And I think that it's not really a fair fight. I think it's it's really like a 90-10 or an 85-15 fight. Uh, that all this, Maybe you have a different view yeah. of that. I don't know. 85-15 sounds about right, I think. Yeah, maybe 25, 75-25. Right. But the nationalist conservatives surely have that as evidenced by, again, what continues to happen in these primaries and in 2016. I, I'm just, the Trump thing, though, uh, what percentage would you put on it? Do you have a sliver of hope that, like, let's say this is very real. He's staring down the fact that he's going to be sitting as a criminal defendant in May as the nominee. You know, might the dam break at any point? Is there any reason to believe that there's a straw to break the camel's back coming as all of the Republican consultants keep hoping it's going to happen? If you believe that, then you've been believing something like that story since he insulted John McCain. In the summer of 2015. You know, we were... I was a young man. Yeah, we were one that this is going to be the thing which breaks the count. Access Hollywood is going to be the Charlottesville. Well, the the midterm losses in 2018. Well, this phone call in which he says there's a quid pro quo. I just don't understand why it would be, in part because, uh, as you and I have talked about, and we talked with Sarah on Wednesday, most of the other Republicans who are trying to defeat him, right, like the people who have, in a zero-sum game, a vested interest in him losing and going away, run cover for him by saying that he is being persecuted by people who hate Republican voters and that they are destroying our system of justice and that, you know, they will fire these people just the way he would fire these people. And then they say, but vote for me and reward these terrible deep staters. And so it's just an incoherent approach. No, no, it's, no? Com- it's completely incoherent. Yeah, no, they're advancing his messaging on it, right? And it's like, in order for this to be the straw that breaks the camel's back, eventually the opponents of him have to say, it's bad to have our nominee be thrice indicted and be facing trial. They have to say, like, that's bad. And it's an unadulterated bad. Maybe it's bad. Maybe he's been treated a little unfairly, but it's still bad. And he did this to himself, right? Like, unless the argument is maybe it's unfair, but it's bad. And he did it to himself until you can get there. Why would people change? And, and meanwhile, you have McCarthy now, instead of, you know, trying to do things that would nudge things that direction, he has a deal this week that he's working on about expunging the impeachment. You know, it's kind of like the rich kid that gets the DUI. One of my buddies got a DUI and his dad is is rich and well-connected. And a couple years later, he's like, boom, expunged. 
I never really understood how that worked. I was like, well, those are just youthful indiscretions from his first presidential term, right? (laughs) Your first presidential term is your juvie term. And it's not really until your second and third terms, because remember, you're owed a makeup third term because of how dirty they did you in your first term. Those ones are a little more serious and hard to accept. But, you know, these youthful misdemeanors. Doesn't go on your permanent record. Those don't go on your permanent (laughs) record. You got to expunge those. Let me try something out for you, because I've written this, but it hasn't been published before we're talking. I believe what Ron DeSantis should do is that he should say, oh, let me tell you guys something. Donald Trump is guilty as sin. I've looked at all this stuff. This guy is guilty as sin. And you know what? I don't care because I'm not going to give these Antifa BLM Marxist radicals in the Department of Justice the satisfaction. And, uh, you know, I hope that they charge him. and I hope the jury lets him off. Just to show them and shove, rub their faces in it. Ooh, you're and so I'm close. Gonna, if I'm going to be president, then I'm. You know, let me tell you, the problem with Donald Trump is this guy is incompetent. He wasn't able to overturn the 2020 election when they stole it from him. Let me tell you, no Democrats are going to be able to steal an election from me. Right? This is why not That's do close. that? It's so close. It's like, no, but, I, but instead of wanting the jury to let him off, I want the jury to convict him. I want him to go to jail. And then the first second I'm in there, we're going to have a general Raddock style release, you know, where he's taken out. People are cheering. We're going to have a parade. We're going to let him out of jail and we're going to have a parade and it's going to be a day everybody remembers. Anyway, I don't know. Give him the National Medal of Freedom. May, Donald Trump on trial, God willing. Hopefully Aileen Cannon sticks to that. We will be back on Wednesday for the next level. Enjoy this conversation. Easy Money is the book. Go out and get it. Ben McKenzie, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. We'll talk to you guys soon. But first, our friends at Acid Dunk. Peace. Hello and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Miller, with my bestie, Jonathan V. Last. And we're here this Sunday with my aspiring friend, Ben McKenzie, the author of Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. You also might know him as the Glenn Close of the Teen Choice Awards. Six nominees, zero wins. Ben, welcome to the show. Who kept blocking you from the crown? Who kept winning? Chad Michael Murray. Fucking oh, Chad Michael. I get it. CNN. So handsome. And uh, mm. to be beaten by a guy named Chad with three names, it's pretty rough going, man. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, three for first this. names. Really? <laughs> <laughs> he won all six or just like three I don't or four? know. You know I don't know. Okay. I'm sure I wrote it down in my diary. That was just the one that burned. Got it. Oh, man. I can tell you about the first time I went to that. That was a hilarious experience, but it gets pretty dark. But uh, all right. I am the Glenn Close of the Teen Choice Award nominees. Thank you. That's the best intro ever. Thank you. Okay, happy to do it. Uh, Well, we're going to do all crypto. The book is crypto, but for the elder millennials watching, they probably know you from the OC. And so we will do a little bit of OC porn at the very end. So you can stick around for that. But let's do crypto first. I want to start with something I'm sure a million people have asked you. But like, you know, for new folks who are coming to this, how'd this happen? Like all of a sudden it's COVID and, and, you know, you have an acting career and you decide I want to be a Bitcoin investigator. Write yeah. a book about how Bitcoin is bad. Like, just just give us the basics. Here. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the COVID pandemic put the in- entertainment industry on ice in terms of actually practicing it. You can't act with somebody if you have to be six feet apart from them at all times. 
And so I had a lot of time on my hands and I have a degree in economics, undergraduate degree, 20 years old, hadn't really used it much in two decades of show business. The last thing people want to hear about is the dismal science in, uh, in Hollywood, which is all la, la, la. And a buddy of mine came to me and I love him to death. I've known him forever, but he gave me this terrible financial advice in my 20s. And he encouraged me to invest in this like obscure company that was like going to create synthetic blood or something and like... Wasn't Theranos? No, thank God it was not Theranos. Um, although it is pretty interesting. <laughs> I lost money in it. So did he. He wasn't scamming me. But he he came back to me in 2021. He was like, dude, you got to buy some Bitcoin. And I was like, I'm not going to, but <laughs> tell me more. Um, actually, I almost did. I was like, I was caught up in the FOMO. I mean, that's what happened is I came down with a serious case of FOMO, yeah. just like so many other Americans. I mean, we saw these knuckleheads getting rich and the media was like borderline berating us with these stories. I didn't do like, Bitcoin. I got in on AMC, nice. you know, and then my dad, who's a financial expert, told me to sell way too soon. I'm still bitter about that. I was going <laughs> to ride that rocket ship to the moon. <laughs> That's a great story. This is the thing, right? And, you know, as, as I was reading your book, Ben, you, what your buddy said to you was exactly what I thought, which was, OK, none of this makes sense to me. But if this really is the future of money, then shouldn't I have a little bit of exposure to it? Yeah. On a personal level, on an individual level, I completely understand the motivation. And I don't even begrudge it as a, you know, armchair economist. I'm not a financial advisor and I am not offering anyone financial advice on this podcast, but I'm, you know, kind of serving in a capacity here as a journalist author. I don't even begrudge people doing that, right? If you're betting what you can afford to lose, then... Like on some level, I think it's okay, except 40 to 50 million Americans put 1% of their investable capital into Bitcoin. You see what happens, right? Is the bubble just gets huge and a lot of shady dudes end up making most of the money, right? I mean, Sam Bankman Freed and, you know, a few other guys. And most of that money, you know, comes at your expense. I mean, it all comes at your expense because it's basically it's a zero sum game economically. It doesn't really do anything productive. So it's just transferring value between the players. So it's like, you you know, it's like the three of us sit down at a table in Vegas. Like you might win a hand, Tim, you might win a hand, JVL. I might, but like, we're not putting capital productive use. Like if I win money, it's coming from your pocket. Right. But crypto is not a fair game. It's an unregulated unlicensed casino. So most people were going to lose and most people lost. So you're one of the dudes sitting there observing this. Me and JVL are both pretty Bitcoin skeptic. I want to give you a couple of questions on the other side. But I was sitting there sure. too. Okay, how do you go from that to being like, I'm going to write articles in Slate about this? That seems like <laughs> a big jump. Yeah, that was a little bit of a jump. My pandemic hobby was like, I wanted to make money initially. I got FOMO. And I didn't know what to invest in. I'd never invested in the stock market. You know, I opened up an account and it just sat there because I didn't know what the hell to do. And I started reading. I was like, oh, we're in a bubble. Like the only way to explain this, this madness, I mean, this was 2021. So this was meme stocks. This was people buying links to JPEGs of bored monkeys for game stonks, millions of fake money. Yeah. Game stomps, like people were buying land in the metaverse for some fake money. Oh, yeah. Like it was absurd. And the only way to explain it was it was a bubble born of easy money. You know, the easy money times that had started in the subprime crisis and kind of went crazy in this response to the pandemic. So I figured if I can't be long, I'll be short. And I'll bet that, you know, some companies that seem particularly full of it are going to crash. Because historically speaking, fraud runs rampant in bubble times. That in a roundabout way through my buddy that led me to crypto. And I was like, oh, well, I think that's also baloney. So I bet him and, you know, and I bet a little bit of money on crypto crashing, which I basically was too early on initially and then did okay. You know, 
what troubled me about crypto and the reason I felt like I had to speak out was like, unlike all these other companies, because I'm not public with like, like, I feel like it's nobody's business and I'm not there to offer financial advice. So I'm not going to talk trash about any company. I'm certainly not going to talk about any company I position in. And I'm not going to talk trash about any company, you know, that's supposedly regulated if I can help it, because that's the regulator's job. But what troubled me about crypto was like, it was being sold to the average American as the way to make money, but it was economically an unregulated, unlicensed security, or in the laws, the eyes of the law, in my opinion, um, should have been classified as an unregulated licensed security. And it was sold to the investors, the average American, with no protections, no investor protections. And that's terrifying. I mean, 20,000 fake currencies out there, that's more unregulated unlicensed securities than exist in our regulated markets, than in, in the major ind indices, you know, the NYSE and the NASDAQ. If I was right and it was all bullshit, then regular people were going to lose a lot of money. And I felt like I had to speak out. So I got high and uh, I thought I should write a book. And I, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And then I woke up and I didn't know how to write a book. And so I got high again and I saw this journalist had written this article. Uh, even Donald Trump knows Bitcoin is a scam. Jacob Silverman. And so, you know, I, I followed him on Twitter. He followed me back. I saw he lived in Brooklyn. I was like, oh, well, I'll DM him and uh, go on a bromance date. And that's what I did in August of 2021. Took him to drinks at a local Brooklyn bar. I was like, hey, why don't we write a book? I don't know how to write about events that haven't happened yet. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? Did you feel a sense of like physical anger and agitation watching this train wreck happen? I kept reading this and I was like, oh, this guy, I'm with this guy I'm with it because I felt, you know, I, I was writing like little pieces here and there about it when I wasn't doing politics and saying this is all crazy town. But yet, as you know, the famous Keynes, what's the famous Keynes line about how the, the market can stay irrational longer than you can remain solvent. It's a great, exactly, that's right. one of my favorites. Yeah. And so there's nothing you can do about it, really, when yeah. you're in a bubble. Like you think like, oh, I'm smarter than everybody, but then it doesn't matter because mass delusions will go on until they stop going on and you have no control over it. And so in a weird way, was the book like you working out that angst? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's my very expensive therapy. Because that's what I kept thinking. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it was, look, it was it was initially like, let's see if I'm right. I have this thesis that is, you know, borderline. I mean, it's definitely off the beaten path. At the time, we were being told that crypto was like going to cure everything, right? It was a panacea for oh, yeah. all of our ills. And I was going the other way. I'm a, I think I'm a fairly reasonable person. I was definitely aware that I could have been wrong. And me being wrong publicly in such a big way would have been really bad for me and my career. And so it took me some time to summon the courage. But by the time I had done, I don't know, three months of research, I was like, this is shady as F at a minimum. You can cuss here. We cuss a lot. Yeah. This is shady as fuck. And I assume so, but yeah. um, I don't know if it's a family podcast. It is a family podcast. We cuss anyway. There you go. Just like my family. <laughs> Get that tip jar. Daddy's gonna. Daddy's going on a Bitcoin rant. <laughs> Just bring it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> my kids better not be listening. Yeah, it was shady as fuck at a minimum. And so I felt like I needed to do it. On the emotional side of it, as, compared, as I was reading the book, it was comparing to me. So I'm not sure how much background you got on the bulwark here, but many of us are never Trump Republicans, people who were Republican and, and bailed in the party over Trump. And there was like this similar emotional feeling to reading your opening chapters of me being like, I know I'm right that this guy is an asshole. And like all these people that I'm working for, I know they're wrong, but they're getting paid off. Like they're getting White House jobs and I'm depressed. You know, I'm out here reading a little life. 
and like you know my, sure. my career is going down and i'm getting depressed and all my friends old colleagues are getting great jobs and i was like I yeah. you watch that about like matt damon is on the super bowl and all these celebrities are making money off this and i'm like they're wrong i'm right right was- yeah dude dude no absolutely i i completely and when you reached out that was the first thing i thought of was like i felt powerless like so many of us who were like look man Politics aside, like Trump's a con man. Like, he's just a con man. Like, dude, not even a particularly, I mean, he's been a successful one, but like, not like sophisticated. <laughs> like, he'll tell you what crimes he's committing at a press conference or potential crimes. Uh, sorry. Oof, have I gone too far? No. Okay. I assume so. But like, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. Like, at the end of the day, he was elected and, you know, we needed to let Americans come to their own conclusions and, and work towards like speaking the truth out. But I couldn't do anything. I was an actor. Well, if, if, if I as an actor was like, Trump sucks, like people like, uh huh. News at 11. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Oh, really? A, a woke Hollywood elite <laughs> liberal from from Texas. Uh, wait, sorry. No, not that part. But, uh, you know, with a degree in economics. I want JVL to get nerdy with you on Bitcoin because he's much more positioned to do this. But I am curious since you brought up politics. For our listeners, could you just place your politics? I did notice in the book two things. One, you didn't like Donald Trump, which you know doesn't mean much. He's a fucking buffoon. But there was a little hint of you might be a little bit of a fiscal hawk. I don't know. You seem to express some concerns about spending, a lot of spending, and easy money with the Fed. I don't know. I maybe I caught maybe a, like a little hint of Paul Ryan in there, or maybe I was oh, wishful shit. thinking. No. <laughs> yeah, sorry, buddy. No, sorry to disappoint you. Okay. Yeah. yeah, no, look, man, I feel like our system's all fucked up. So, yeah. I mean, who doesn't? But, yeah. and I am not running for office and I do not want to run out for office. And I find politics, quite frankly, I don't know how you guys do it because I just, it seems, I mean, I think crypto is gross, but like politics is really intense. Well, maybe somewhat similar to you. I feel not alienated from my party as a Democrat, but like, I'm pretty upset about corruption. I'm pretty upset about the corruption. And the corruption is, or, unethical behavior is pervasive as it relates to crypto you're talking about like the sbf and the you know oh i'm not just talking about i mean definitely crypto but in general i mean i believe capitalism is swallowing our democracy and i'm not anti-capitalism i believe about capitalism what churchill said about democracy it's like the worst system ever created except for all the rest like it's fine if we can fix it and actually govern it uh, in a democratic way but if politicians from both parties are being bought off uh, you know, on a whole host of issues, I mean, leaving crypto aside, like all sorts of other things, then the incentive structures are not there to really change the system, right? It's a really nasty feedback loop that we've gotten ourselves on. And, you know, you can point to Citizens United, which I do think was a terrible decision that set a lot of precedents, but like it obviously goes back even further. So yeah, I guess I would describe my politics as like anti-bullshit. <laughs> I'm like not happy when Democrats excuse the behavior of certain high-profile members and like, Congress people and people in public office should not be able to trade stock, for example. Like, that's just ridiculous. That is so absurd. And I don't give a fuck if the Supreme Court is going to ultimately, you know, override you or whatever. You have no excuse not to try, like, and, and pass that law. And it's just cowardice on both parties. I mean, look, there are good people out there. There are good politicians. There are good people in public service. There are great people on these staffs. But there are also people that are supposedly representing Americans that I don't think have their best interests at heart. I mean, you can start out as Paul Ryan. The deeper you get into crypto, the more you come out like Elizabeth Warren, right? Well, at least on that issue. I mean, the thing with crypto, I kept trying to be like, there's got to be something there, right? But it really is only useful for gambling and for criminal activity. I mean, it doesn't do anything. And even the criminal activity stuff is, it turns out, like really curtailed, right? Because you can chase, you know, there were all these high profile examples of the FBI being able to chase because the ledger is public, 
right? Chase yeah. people through. It turns out yeah, you can't even really money launder through it that way. Look, money launderers don't have a high bar, right? Like they're used to right. taking a pretty significant haircut, right? If you're just trying to clean your money, you might take, I don't know, 60 cents on the dollar, 40 cents on the dollar, right? I mean, a clean 40 cents is worth a hell of a lot more than a dollar, a dirty dollar. So it does have some usefulness. I never underestimate the stupidity of criminals because like a lot of these guys will do it even if like it isn't probably a good idea. Uh, you know, they have a high risk tolerance, as we say. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's like I look at all the shit that it facilitates. I mean, people are aware of ransomware, but like really think about it. Hacking has been around forever. Hacking is unfortunately not that hard to do, I'm afraid. And it's the getting paid part that's the hard part. And that's what crypto is great for. Because like, let's say you hack into some government office or some major corporation, you want to get a billion dollars in cash. Well, what are you going to do? Meet them in a Home Depot parking lot with like three truckloads of traceable money? No, crypto. North Koreans have gotten away with it. But like these other yahoos, like, yeah, it's a public record, dude. Like if they can yeah. figure out what address you own, they can figure out what you did. The problem is it takes work. It takes legwork. And there's so much criming going on that for a while it took a long time to, to surround it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Not that this is all about me, but another instance and when I am reading your book and thinking to myself, he's me, he's me, is when you're watching the baseball game and you start stroking out because the umpires are wearing FTX advertisements, because this is the thing that I would simply yell about. And my wife would say like, oh, he's going on about FTX. And I would say, not only are they, you know, is MLB helping to push this bullshit gambling thing, but they've put it on the, the actual umpires who are the sign of the rules and the sign that everything they're going to enforce things that are right. And there is no enforcement. Don't you people understand it's an unregulated securities. And my wife would just be like, stop. <laughs> Hey, same here, brother. They literally bought off the umps. They, literally, they paid the umps literally. to advertise for them. It's a pretty amazing trick. And apparently that's the first time it's ever been done. Apparently there's never been advertising on umpire's uniforms prior to no, that. It was, only, it was reserved for when an umpire had died and they wanted to honor one of their colleagues and now it's FTX. Yeah, hopefully there never will be again. Yeah. Here's my question for you. The, the first big one, which is that a lot of times you look in a scam and you, you talked a little bit in passing about Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff's scam was really good, right? I mean, he got away with it for, what, 25, 35 years or something. He did it very, very well. And the people you see are really smart. And you say, OK, I, you know, I understand how people get stuckered by this. As you point out over and over and over again in the book, they're just red flags everywhere. I'm going to just tether because you talk about Tether a lot. Tether had at one point a $69 billion valuation and 12 employees. For people that don't know, uh, they were the ones behind Stablecoin. So that was supposed to be the normal one. Stablecoins, right. Yes. And of their 12 employees, right, one of them was a plastic surgeon who had defrauded Microsoft. Another one was a CEO who had been a vitamin salesman. Their chief counsel worked at the poker site, which let people cheat. Yeah, it had a secret God mode where you could right. defraud the other customers, yeah. Why is it that so many, and I understand like the masses, I understand why average Americans would get snookered, but why did like institutions and VC funds and people who are supposed to care about tail risk, how did the rest of the world, right, there was sort of that, that top level of the financial system not see what was happening? I mean, it's actually a fallacy that uh, we sort of ascribe intelligence to these supposedly sophisticated firms, and sometimes they're intelligent and behave intelligently, but greed is a powerful motivator. And if you're running a VC, if you're a VC and you're trying to 100x, like you're supposed to take wild risks. 
I mean, the story that really stuck out to me was Sam Bankman-Fried's trying to raise a billion dollars from Silicon Valley VCs, and he's on a Zoom with them. And he's talking about how FTX is going to, you know, change money and you're also going to be able to buy car insurance on it and like, you know, whatever. It's going to be, it's the everything app. It's going to do everything. And they're like, huh. And he keeps looking over at the side of his screen every once in a while. And they realize that he's playing a video game. He's playing League of Legends while (laughs) on the call with them trying to raise a billion dollars. And now normies like you and me. Power move. Yeah, we'd be like, well, that guy's sketchy <laughs> as fuck. Like, I'm not giving him my money. But VCs are like, holy shit, he's so smart. He's and he genius. so doesn't need our money. We must give it to him. I don't think it was intentional on Sam's part. I mean, Sam has ADD and he's notorious for playing multiple games at a time. So, But it really stuck out because it deconstructs. Like, it just destroys these these myths that, like, VCs are brilliant. And, like, in easy money times, everyone looks like a genius. Right. It's like I threw money into, you know, I bought an AI stock of some company that's never going to have a product. It went up 100 percent yesterday. So I'm a genius. It's when the the fit hits the sham and like easy money goes away that, you know, you see you swimming naked, to quote Warren Buffett. So, look, and the other thing is, quite frankly, if you got in early and you are an insider, you can make a lot of money at the expense of other people. I mean, that's the real kind of cynical part. There are American companies, VC companies that that got in early on these coins and sold them, you know, effectively to the general public. And, you know, we'll see what regulators say about that. But it'll be interesting to see. You did an on-camera interview with Sam Bankman-Fried, which, <laughs> frankly, you didn't spend enough time on it in the book. I could have had a whole nother chapter on it just with, with all of your stuff on it. So for people who may be watching this who don't run, FTX, which was Sam Bankman-Fried's company, was notoriously poorly run. For instance, multi-million dollar expenses would be okayed with emojis. This would, you know, somebody would say, can I spend the money on this on the internal Slack? And then like a thumbs up emoji would come through. And that was how, (laughs) but so when Sam Bankman Fried went off the record with you and was talking about Giancarlo Devasini, who was the the CFO over at Tether, I think, and said, I would not run a company the way he does. Like, did your eyes fall out of your head? <laughs> it was like the weirdest moment ever out of a really weird interview where he goes, look, there's more stuff I could say off the record. And then he just proceeded. We didn't agree to it. So I felt fine including it. And by the way, by the time I, you know, then he was arrested. I was like, oh, screw this guy. But like, like I'll protect sources that are actually like being legitimate with me. You don't go, this is totally off the record. And let me tell you all this horrible possible criminal stuff that I'm about to, you know. And he just slagged off like everyone who mattered in crypto. You know, he was like, without really slagging them off, but just kind of, he was trying to redirect our energy towards, you know, other people, people other than him. So yeah, he slagged off Tether and, um, you know, by by inference, uh, Binance, who he famously fell out with, you know, later, and <laughs> that's another story, and, and other guys. So it was like, he basically turned on this inner circle that felt like was very powerful in crypto. And I thought, why would you do that unless you were up to no good, right? You know what I mean? It felt very yeah. manipulative and it was really weird. And I have the audio, so. Yeah. As you were interviewing him, I mean, were you in the back of your mind thinking, this guy might go to prison? You know what? At the time, and it's a testament to how powerful the narrative was, at the time, I admit I even swallowed some of it, like for sure, because he was on the cover of magazines. He went to MIT. He was at Jane Street. You went to UVA. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like MIT is fine. That's true. Go Cavaliers. That's true. Right? You went to Mr. Jefferson's University. 
All right, well, I can outdrink him, that's for sure. I ascribed all this intelligence to him and sophistication that I kept running into the reality over our hour-long interview, or I kept being like, oh, this doesn't make sense, what, 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 what? And then at the end, because I couldn't prove that he committed fraud or anything, obviously, and I couldn't accuse him of crimes, you know, that's not my role, I was a journalist, author, I guess. I mean, I'll put it this way, we didn't know what to make of that interview until things went really sideways, and then it all made sense. And so basically, actually, Jacob had done a pass on the interview, and I was like, no, actually, I'm just going to rewrite the whole thing and just do it, because... Not nothing he's done wrong, he's done great, but like it was hard to know what to make of it, except this was sketchy as fuck. And something was gonna happen. At the end of the day, the scam was even more simpler and dumber, the alleged scam, even simpler and dumber than I ever thought it would be. It was simple. He changed one line of code in millions of lines. He asked he got his lieutenant to change one line of code in millions of lines of code. And that created a secret backdoor where he could borrow, quote unquote, against his customers' funds and basically like spend all of their money. Pretty simple scheme. Yeah, this is one of the big questions is where did the money go? Because FTX took in about $16 billion worth of customer funds. And then when everything hit the fan and we started to finally see the books and the ledgers, it looks like the total number of assets were really, really small. And a lot of the assets were phantom. And so like Serum, which is where I don't think you talk, you talk about FTT a lot, but Serum, which is a coin that Alameda created which for free, right? Because they just made it. They made this coin. And then they sold like 3% of it in the open market and held the rest of it and then just said on the balance sheets that what they were holding was worth $2.2 billion. Yeah, because that's never there, right? I mean, you're saying like somebody bought 3% of something and then you're valuing the rest at that price when in fact no demand, very little real organic demand exists for that asset, the quote unquote asset. But where did the customer money go? Have the forensic accountants figured this out? Lamborghinis, hookers and blow? Uh, No, he, you know, he drove a Corolla. He slept on the floor. (laughs) He was going to give it all away. I mean, he gave 100 million to politicians, allegedly, through a straw donor scheme. (laughs) Political consultants got the money. Another win for political campaign (laughs) consultants. Another win for humanity. (laughs) And by the way, both parties, woohoo! So he spent 100 mil on that. Um, I'm assuming the FTX arena wasn't cheap. Celebrity endorsements, Bahamas real estate. You know, and then you're also getting into like, look, man, behind the sort of farcical crypto bro front of of the crypto industry, which is easy to mock, and I enjoy doing so very much, behind that, it can be used for serious crime. And so I think those people are all too happy to have somebody like Sam take the fall for, you know, (laughs) put it this way, Alameda was the biggest or second biggest client of Tether. Those guys that you were mentioning before, the the really not shady at all guys. So... We'll find out what that was about and how that worked at some point. There were so many clues for fraud. It was it was just wild. Why hasn't the whole crypto world gone to zero? I mean, there is still Bitcoin still exists with a market cap. Ethereum still exists. The the board eight yacht club still like their NFTs still have value. Bitcoin's still doing pretty good, actually. It doesn't just still exist. I don't know. I mean, like after the big fall, I was listening to like one of the sports, you know, that uh, Haral Bob, who's a big kind of a sports stats guy that got rich gambling on sports. I was listening to him on a podcast and there was an anti-Bitcoin guy saying like, how do you feel about Bitcoin yeah. now, Haral Bob? And but he was in early. So he's like, I've still made a ton of money. Like I'm still up, right? So like, so it's still doing quite well, I think, depending on when you got in. For those people, yeah. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of GameStop, right? So when GameStop had its big explosion, right, the Reddit subreddit Wall Street bets came and people decided they were going to pump GameStop up. And it was crazy. And, you know, GameStop was never actually worth like $133 a share or whatever it was. And after a long while, it eventually collapsed. But even when it collapsed, it was still trading at like 50% over what it had been pre-mania. And that's, I guess, what I don't understand. Like, you know, we're post-mania, and yet there are still people in these things that should... Again, we've all seen with it. It's fraud, allegedly. Like, why aren't they at zero? (laughs) There's still some mania. Well... Yeah, yeah, sure. Because some people still believe in it, right? I mean, it's just a story. Economically, it's uh, it's an economic narrative. I'm really into Robert Schiller, who's this Nobel Prize winning economist who's talked about this. But like, you know, economic narratives, the more powerful they are, the harder they die. And so as long as people believe in it, it'll exist forever. I mean, even after potentially some other people, you know, get charged with crimes and some other big players potentially possibly in the future go down. But the other answer to that, in addition to the belief thing, is... Well, fraud. The Bitcoin market is notoriously illiquid. There's very little real liquidity there, meaning real organic demand for the coin. Ownership is highly concentrated. I think it's 0.1% of wallet addresses, or maybe it's 0.01%, control 27% of the supply that can ever exist. So if you think of it as a commodity or security, it's like a, you know, (laughs) it bears more resemblance to to a penny stock in that sense, in that ownership is highly concentrated. And given the amount of wash trading and other shenanigans, and because it's traded through the exchanges like Binance, which is, you know, an interesting company that we spend some time talking about, which is run through shell corporations overseas, you can say it's worth whatever it's worth, but it's only worth that if you can get it out in real money. And they're doing some really shady stuff now. I mean, what they'll do, for example, they notoriously do any KYC and AML, know your customer, any money laundering stuff. A lot of these crypto exchanges didn't do any of it or very little of it. And... Now they will, so they didn't KYC or AML you on the way in, but they'll KYC you on the way out. And they'll be like, oh, that, that can't give you your money back. Sorry. Hmm. Yeah. And the exchanges will shut down and they'll disable the withdrawal button. I was a journalist was just telling me that about a major exchange. I mean, dude, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Look, if you got your money in crypto and it's on a licensed US exchange, which may or may not end up being licensed, but we'll let the courts decide that. But like, Coinbase or whatever, like, and you're not trying to get a lot of money out, you're probably good. But like, try moving a billion dollars worth of crypto through even the regulated marketplace. Good luck. The exchange volumes are lower than they were when this whole madness took off in late 2020 and early 21. So retail's gone. Retail's not there anymore. I asked a couple of crypto industry people that basically JVL's question, like their answer to this is that crypto provides a certain services that the actual fiat, you know, big banks don't provide, right? And there are certain things, whether it's, you know, crossing borders or it's certain things for, uh, you know, uh, uh, people that are unbanked or, or there's, you know, certain kind of frictionless banking. Like, do you disagree with that? Do you think crypto provides literally nothing that the banking system provides? Or do you think that it does provide? Well, if what you're trying to avoid and sending your cross-border payments is not paying taxes and evading sanctions and avoiding capital controls and things like that, then it's very useful. I went to El Salvador, the only country in the world that's trying to use Bitcoin as, as real money, and it's not working. And if crypto was going to work for remittances, for sending money overseas, then it should work in El Salvador because El Salvador's economy is re- heavily relying on remittances. It's a quarter of the economy. There's two to three million people of Salvadoran descent who live primarily in the United States. The money they send home is a quarter of the economy, and it's a it's a cash 
economy. Most people do not have banking. Most people are, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. And the government was like, look, we're going to suddenly do Bitcoin as currency. We're going to build this system on top of it, the Chivo wallet system. And it'll allow you to send money back home without paying Western Union and MoneyGram. That's going to charge you a fee. Great sales pitch. What happened? Bomb. Just bomb. The day it went into effect, crypto crashed, which is very interesting. If you were, say, front-running crypto, this would be an interesting move. And they basically gave every Salvadoran 30 bucks. People were getting their identities ripped off. People were losing that money. And Salvadorans basically were like, no, fuck this. We're not going to use this stuff. So according to the government's own figures, less than 2% of Salvadorans use the system. Why? Because it doesn't work. Because it doesn't work. And they don't have money that they can afford to gamble with. Like they can't lose all of their money if they're trying to send it home to like feed their families or whatever. So, you know, my answer to remittances is bullshit. <laughs> I mean, it can be used as a kind of a rudimentary store of value in times of crisis. Like you see the Argentines using it because inflation is insane or whatever. But I describe it like this. They're not currencies. So calling a crypto a currency is like calling a brick a soccer ball. Could you play soccer with a brick? I mean, sure, but I wouldn't recommend it. It's going to hurt. There's a lot of costs associated with it. And it also facilitates so much crime that you have to ask yourself, do the, does the marginal possible good of somebody being able to avoid, say, a totalitarian state, um, does that outweigh the massive amount of fraud and the massive amount of illegal activity that it facilitates? Uh, my answer is absolutely no. 100% no. Yeah. I mean, you can see it functioning as a hedge commodity like gold or silver, right? But hedging against what? Like they were saying Everything. it's going to hedge against right. inflation, yeah. which was hilarious, right? I was like, oh, fuck that. Good luck. And they tried to sell that. I went on CNBC and the host who was just repeating the talking Jeez. points like said that to me. <laughs> and it was already down like 30% at that point. This was April of 2022. And I'm like, hedge it. So it's a hedge in the sense that as inflation goes up, it goes down. That's your hedge. Like these are just stories, guys. Like I know these guys want to believe in it. They got in early. They did well. Like good on them. Uh, I'm not accusing them of committing crimes, but like. That's just a pyramid scheme, Ponzi scheme, right? You got in early, the thing went up. Like, congratulations. Like, get out, by the way. Like, I mean, you know, not that I want to give advice to these guys, but like, and they're so defensive now. And they're so angry now. Why are they so triggered by just like an actor who wrote a book? You know, if their industry is so transformative, like, gee, Ryan Atwood's really getting under your skin. You know, it's just like, it's all bullshit. You know what I mean? And it goes back to like fucking Trump, right? I mean, it's like, they're bullies. They try to bully you into believing this stuff that they really believe in because they've made money on it. But the only logic they understand is playground logic. Like you got to punch them in the mouth. Like bullshit. You're full. I will of say one of my crypto industry friends was not triggered by you, and in fact said that she wanted me to tell you that you are Ooh. the hottest skeptic in all of tech. It's a low bar. So you do have that going for you. Much hotter than the. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen the other guys, the Facebook <laughs> skeptic guys? Nah, I'm not mad at people in the industry. And I say it in the front of the book, just to be clear, most people haven't committed fraud. So just join me in condemning those that have and let's see where the where the chips fall, right? Let's just see what happens. Flush out the bad guys and see what's left. Last question, and then I, I'll give you back over to Tim. Does social media create unique regulatory problems? Some of the regulatory architecture is designed to prevent things like pump and dumps and Ponzi's, et cetera. 
you have technology creating like new securities, which again, crypto clearly was a security. Like it was not, it was not a currency. And then you have social media, which allows millions of people, tens of millions of people to coordinate actions across the globe in ways which were impossible before. Uh, so you can have things like, you know, our Wall Street bets and you can have things like Dogecoin, where Elon Musk owns some enormous amount of Dogecoin and he can tweet just, you know, tweet the Doge emoji. Dogecoin goes up and he sells off some Dogecoin and makes money. And then, he, you know, he waits a week and tweets about how he sold some Dogecoin. Dogecoin goes down. Then he can buy some more. It is literally like owning a printing press for money. Is this the type of thing that you think there should be some regulatory infrastructure for? Should we have to change with the times on this? Have you spent any time thinking about this stuff? Oh, definitely spend some time thinking about it. And there's not a lot of easy answers. I do think the social media companies like have to be regulated because right. a lot of that demand, again, like what you're really talking about is fake demand, right? Like people are like, they're literally paying people in like the Philippines to like tweet about, you know, because you'll see the same tweets going over and over and over again. And it makes, gives you this sense that like, oh, there's a movement. There's all these people that are buying Bitcoin. But like, <laughs> Come on, dude. Look at a lot of these handles. They're like, they got the laser eyes. They're all synonymous, almost all of them, right? And you're like, crypto punk chick 34712, who like, you know, has only tweeted about crypto over the last two years. Like, uh-huh, yeah, sure. Now you're definitely into it. In that sense, yeah, I think it's a new form of manipulation. And I think that it's really, think about codifying existing regulations. It's not some new thing. We've had securities laws for 90 years. Why have they worked? Because they're broadly written on purpose. They're supposed to be applicable to almost anything. It's four things with the Howey test. Investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. That could be applied to so many different things and is. Apply it to crypto and see what happens. In terms of social media, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you police that stuff. We could have a whole separate podcast on this. We probably should. Our Congress's ineptitude is a big issue here, right? Because like it's totally failed as having it as an administrative state solution, both to big tech issues and to crypto issues. And, and this is an example of why, you know, not having two functioning governing parties is a problem. Okay, uh, Ben, I want to give you just two more little uh, pushbacks from crypto friends. And then we're going to talk about Ryan Atwood. The first one I think is going to be like batting practice for you, but I'm going to do it anyway because multiple it. people said this to me. And that is, is it possible that your hostility to crypto could just be a lack of understanding of the tech? Like, what do you say to the fact that real smarties like Mark Andreessen and other extremely wealthy, intelligent people think that this is the future? Yeah, like Jack Dorsey of Twitter, who is obviously brilliant. I mean, he's rich, so he must be smart. And he was talking about hyperinflation which was coming to the United States in the fall of 2021. And he warned people they needed to buy Bitcoin because there was going to be hyperinflation in the United States. We need to stop with this notion that billionaires are somehow smarter than us. <laughs> they may be smart about whatever it is that made them money, which they may have made in an ethical manner or not. But that does, certainly doesn't make them smart about things that they haven't made money on or whatever. These are just stories. Like, I, I know we want to say... If you say I haven't done enough research, my response to you is fuck you. I've spent two years investigating this. 
I've interviewed the head of your entire industry who's now alleged to have been running a fraudulent scheme. Like, what more proof do you need that I am right, dude? Like, I, I, I don't know Let's what to do. Let's do that in one of those cases. But. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they have internal Binance. The Binance, the biggest exchange that's been sued by the CS, CFTC and the SEC and has yet to be charged by the DOJ. Let's see. They have internal communications in Binance employees. And one of the Binance employees says to the other, dude, <laughs> we're running an unlicensed security exchange in the United States, bro. That's a quote from, alleged quote from, I mean, man, give me, give me a break. I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't know what you're talking about. By the way, the people, I'm getting triggered. The people that say that are usually, they're usually, they go like, I'm not taking financial advice from a reality star. Make you idiot. You don't even know my career. Like, that's, I, what reality show have I been you on? You don't appreciate my oof. You don't appreciate. The OC started The Real Housewives. The Real Housewives of Orange County. We, you can look this up. We started it. Nobody gave a shit about Orange County before then. I started your reality TV that you're, yeah, that was me. I was a big part of that. That was pretty good. Okay, I want to go to OC. Right. I, I have one legit thing, though. I'm got to be wrong. Like, there's got to be something I'm missing here. And one thing that landed with me once that you covered in the book was somebody made this talking point. I didn't realize it was a talking point when my friend told it to me. And it was that actually this is super useful. If you're, you can be a video game player in some third world country that gets really good at a video game, and people will pay you in Bitcoin to go earn them, you know, various tokens and help them get to other levels. And it's a way that people can make money, and that you can't do that with fiat currency. Well, what? First of all, why not? Why couldn't you pay people? I mean, you're paying them in fiat to, I assume, to play these video games endlessly and then sell it back to Americans at a higher yeah. price, right? So, right. like, there is fiat involved. But I mean, let's use a good example. Let's 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 use a company that has experience here. Axie Infinity was a big. This is called Play to Earn, right? Yeah. It was a big Play to Earn company, and it was hacked. And if you can't see me because you're listening to a podcast, I'm using the biggest air quotes you've ever effing seen. <laughs> to say it was hacked for all of this money. <sighs> I mean, guys, like, at best, what? It's the most depressing future ever, like slave labor of guys playing bad video games in the Philippines, people playing bad video games to sell it back to Americans. That's the best case. The worst case is it's just being used to fraud, to fraud people, right? It's like, they're gonna buy these like fake assets to play this game. It's really funny, like the gamer community hates crypto, Cryptographers hate crypto. Uh, software engineers hate crypto. I mean, majorities of these professions, I would argue, because I've talked to them. And so it's just like another excuse, right? It's just like another way of, of sorry, man, there's nothing there. Okay, OC porn. And then we're going to do, do a quick rapid fire. JVL, I'm leaving one of the rapid fires. I'm going to give you a minute to think about a baseball rapid fire. We've got a baseball person. I don't do baseball, all right? So you're going to close this out with baseball. But first, OC, when did you know it was going to happen for you? Like, when were you like, oh my God? Step one was that you walked on the set and you just looked at all the pretty people and you're like, this is going to hit or when was it? Oh, heck no. No, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never really worked before. I probably spent three or four days on a set in my life prior to getting, you know, the lead of this pilot. And so I had no idea what I was doing. I was scared shitless. And who was your competition? Do you know? Is there another famous person out there that you beat out for Ryan Atwood? Look, I don't have any beef with him now, but Chad Michael Murray claimed <laughs> at the time that he was offered my part and turned it down. Like you break it news here, Tim, in a sense that I've been trying to be classy about this. I've been trying to be classy about this, but he did claim you can read about it. I believe it was in an issue of Entertainment Weekly. And at the time, I was quite sensitive about this. I was like, come on, what are you doing, Tim? Like, don't say that. Oh, I hate this. I had a crush on him during One Tree Hill. 
Uh, now I'm getting uncomfortable. Anyway, sorry, continue. He has good hair and I wish him nothing but the best. Uh, when did I know it was a hit? Well, uh, <laughs> we, we were shooting and it felt like it was going really well. And the energy was good and the vibe was good. And it was great script by Josh Schwartz and Doug Lyman, oh. who, you know, was directed Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Swingers, who was what I was really a big fan of him at the time. Yeah, great director. He directed the pilot. We wrapped on a Friday. They were editing it as we shot. And the following Monday, I was I needed a car. I bought a $500 1986 Cadillac DeVille out of the Penny Saver because I didn't have any money and I needed a car in L.A. And so I'd done this pilot and gotten enough money where I was like, I was going to go and buy a car. So I was with Brody, actually, Adam Brody, and we were at the uh, Subaru dealership or something, right? And I got the call from my agents that we were picked up. So we were picked up on a Monday after the Friday. Like they literally <laughs> saw like a, like a rough cut. And I went to the Infinity dealership, got myself an Infinity because I was like, and I got a car with a spoiler and Brody never gave me, he gave me so much grief for that. I got a car with a spoiler and he made it fun of me forever for that. So that's what I knew. That leads into my next question, actually, which is, were you annoyed that the show hit right at the moment when the hipster vibe was coming in? So your dorky sidekick ended up, you know, kind of outshining you as being the person uh, who like girls have, yeah. you know, on posters on their wall. And that hey. was supposed to be you. You were supposed to be the pretty boy. First of all, I did just fine. So don't, don't cry <laughs> okay. for me. And secondly, <laughs> you know, Josh Schwartz, who I love and who I'm so friendly with and Adam, you know, Josh is a version of Adam, right? I mean, he's this Jewish kid who at USC well, actually, at UCLA originally, I think, and then he transferred to USC. Like, he realized there was this whole culture in Orange County that he could write about and as an outsider could write about. So, you know, the character of Seth is very similar to Josh. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, the writing's going to go that direction. And Adam's unbelievably talented. And, like, yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, okay, you know, that is what it is. So you don't like, think it was the hipster culture? It was Josh giving him a nudge. I'm well, no, the hipster <laughs> culture was also happening. It was in the air. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, like I was eight years all- earlier, you would have been who was said this JVL. We need your Gen X knowledge here. What was Brendan in nine zero two one zero? Luke Perry, right? Jason Priestley versus Luke Perry. Yeah, Jason, but both those guys were like bros, like you. Yeah, you know, yeah. and you have this, you bring in dorky Adam Brody, and it's like right at the moment that metrosexuality is coming in. I was also a friend was pointing this out at the time to try to make me feel better because I was feeling like, oh God, I'm like, I'm just going to be that guy that was like, you were on that teen show that one time, you know, and now you're whatever you're hot. You're trying to sell me like life insurance at three in the morning on a cable TV. And my friend was like, you're pretty unusual because you got cast in your big bakeout role against type. Like you're not actually anything like that guy. I mean, in the sense that like I have an, e- I'm an econ dork. I mean, uh, so I think in that sense, I felt uncomfortable for a while, but here's the good news about this shit. I care about this. I think I know what I'm talking about and I found my way. So cryptocurrency, thank you. You have given me purpose. Isn't it nice when you can feel really, you know, good and fulfilled about your work? This is something that I did as well. Though I will say you shouldn't feel unfulfilled about Ryan Atwood. And I'm only fucking with you because it is just too weird and cool for me to have had Adam Brody and and, and you on, uh, on our it. little podcast. Okay, I'm moving to rapid fire. Are you ready? Ready. Four rapid fire questions. Three from me and then one from JVL. Number one, everyone gets it. What's something that you've changed your mind about as a grown-up? Gambling. And gambling's actually not, it's not victimless. It's not harmless. You've gone from pro-gambling to anti-gambling. Maybe the two most interesting answers to that question are from the OC guys. Adam Brody gave us guns and movies. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, you know, and that he's kind of changed his view. As a parent, it's starting, yeah, I was on Gotham, which is an incredibly yeah. violent show, and I was showing it to my kids the other day, and I was like, oh, my God, this is actually really bad. Like, I'm still gambling, but I'm on the fence with you on that. Okay, who is Satoshi? 
You've done two years worth of research. Do you have a theory? Oh, uh, well, actually, thank you. Uh, <laughs> on this podcast, I was going to reveal the big secret. Okay, great. 51 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> Satoshi is Chad Michael Murray. <laughs> he not only has beaten me six times. <laughs> the Teen Choice Awards. So go get him. Go get him, guys. Great answer. Favorite song from the OC soundtrack? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, Orange Sky. I like Orange Sky a lot. Are you going to play yourself in the movie version of the book? Because I'm reading this book and I'm thinking to myself, this is half the big short and half the, the last Fletch movie. The movie. This has to happen as a movie. And... <laughs> I, I want you to play yourself. Yeah. Can you do that? Yes. Really? So here's my pitch, is we do make the movie. I would like to direct it. And there is a character, Ben McKenzie, but he's played by Ryan Gosling. Or by Adam Brody. Ooh. Or by Adam Brody, <laughs> possibly. Bit of a stretch. We'd have to do a hair job, a tie job on his hair. But like, it would stretch. be only fitting in my career if the part of me was played by another actor. Or <laughs> Chad born. Michael Murray. Or Chad Michael Murray. Could be a good, could be a good Ben McKenzie in the movie. I think it would be Chad Michael Murray. If Chad Michael Murray's agent is out there, let's make this happen. And uh, all I'm asking for... I like him. All I'm asking for is to be invited to the premiere, okay? I don't want to roll, all right? I don't need all a right. bit roll. You know, it's it just, I, I got a big kick out of... In your book at the beginning, you're like, you're, you're talking about how I feel nervous to reach out to these journalists and politicians. Like, they're going to think that I'm just a dilettante actor. And over here, every political journalist or political consultant is like, please be <laughs> friends with me. No matter if you're like a D minus list actor, I'm desperate to be friends with you. Were you like, were, did you play? Were you in one episode of The OC? I would love to be your friend. I do love kind of the human nature of that. It's a wonderful book. Easy money. Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, The Golden Age of Fraud, Ben McKenzie with Jacob Silverman. This has been really my honor. Thank you so much for doing it. We will hopefully, you know, see you on the trail somewhere. I would love that. Thanks, guys. It's been so far. All right. See you Wednesday for the regular Next Level with JBL and Sarah. And we'll be back next Sunday with somebody not as fun as Ben McKenzie. Peace. Peace.